So G.K. Chesterton, ever quotable, said this about original sin. He said, this doctrine is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. Original sin is the only part of Christian theology that can really be proved. We don't have to look very far for evidence to support Chesterton's claim. There's plenty of low-hanging fruit at hand, right? We look at the sin that marks the world and things that are going around. Uh, pick up social media, pick up the news, it's not hard. And in fact, we can fixate solely on that, seeing sin as external to us, right? It's what's going on out there with those people. It's tempting to just stay with that. But Lentz invites us not only to grieve how sin has marked our world and others, that's a little too safe, but also to reflect on how sin has marked us. There's an invitation to do business with the Lord during Lent, which begins tonight, to acknowledge that we're part of that problem too. It's that we have met the enemy and he is us, that we have light and dark in our hearts. So as we honestly reflect upon and contemplate the wages of sin, we can't avoid a certain holy sadness and a holy grief. Because to do so would be to deny the reality of what sin has done to our world. The world is broken, others are broken, and we're broken. There's so much that isn't as it should be. So this sadness and grief is part and parcel of the repentance that we focus on during Lent. Repentance, that process of doing 180, turning around or returning to God, surrendering the sinful practices that we've adopted into our lives as God reveals them, taking leave of those things which are frankly death to our souls, yielding to God, returning home from exile. These are all the ways of thinking of repentance. Now Lent is also a season of sacrifice. Many of us know that, even those who uh, don't go to church or wouldn't consider themselves Christians know that, oh, this is when you give up something, right? But it's an intentional giving up. It's a chosen giving up. It's a prayerful sacrifice, and, and we try to do that for the right reasons. We intentionally set aside space for God to speak and to move and to act. So we're inviting God into the deep places in our hearts to do some spiritual house cleaning. And while that sounds quaint and a little campy, it can be pretty intense. And there's a question I think you have to ask yourself. Every one of us here does. Will I let God test and sift my heart during Lent? Will I yield to that? Will I give him permission in a sense? So the picture that I have every time I come into Lent, uh, and I'm going to ask you, we're going to do a little object lesson here, okay? Uh, I picture it as, as open and closed hands, just to give a picture of what's going on during Lent. So take your hands and, and clench them like this, okay? So these are the sins that we're holding on to with these clenched fists. These are the idols that we cling desperately to sometimes. These are the things that are not good for us, right? And Lord knows we can adore that parasite that's slowly killing us because that is sin. Lent is about letting go and opening up and opening your hands and dropping the sins. Let's do and open our hands. Dropping the sins, dropping the idols, those things which are death to us so that we can come to God empty-handed with nothing to offer. And that's the goal. <laughs> because then he can fill our hands, now that they're empty, with such good things, the gifts of the Spirit, the desires of the kingdom, seed to sow, fellowship, communion, bread and wine, things like that. So to be empty-handed tonight is a very, very, very good thing because open empty hands can receive.
And they can also do some very good work. And that is the bright hope of Lent. So we're letting go of some things so that our hands can be filled with the right things of God. Okay. Let's pivot. We're going to be in Isaiah 58, 1 through 12 tonight, briefly. And if you have your Bibles or smartphones or what have you, you might want to track with me. One commentator makes a pretty compelling case that Isaiah 58 revolves around what it means to be God's Sabbath people. And to help us understand this, Isaiah presents us with a couple of options. Here's the genuine article. Here's what it looks like to be genuine Sabbath, God's Sabbath people. And here's the invitation. Here's what it means to fake it. But unless we can discern outward appearance from actual reality, they both look the same, right? That's a problem. So as we follow Isaiah's lead, we see that being God's Sabbath people is about more than just resting on one day and working on the other six. It's about a deep trust that God's going to provide. It's about resting in his faithfulness. It's about delighting in him. This is the kind of heart God wants. Certainly wants to cultivate in us. Because behavior, like appearances, can be faked. So you can go to church. You can tithe. You can serve once in a while. You can kind of do the church thing. And yet, your heart can be dead, disengaged, or even poisoned. So God is after our hearts. He wants to reveal our true intentions to us, and he wants to reveal his heart to us as well. And repentance is about a changed heart. So that repentance, or the call to it rather, begins immediately in verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, that the house of Jacob their sins. Now... uh, (laughs) The Lord tells Isaiah, the prophet, to broadcast far and wide the sins of the nation of Israel. Don't hold back the water down, Isaiah. Go for it. And that trumpet blast, which is called a shofar, Hebrew, it's a call to assemble and to listen to God's voice. Get ready. You're going to hear the Lord's voice. Sometimes that shofar is blown to prepare them for battle. Whatever it means here, one thing is really consistent when it's mentioned in the Old Testament. And that is, it's the voice of the Almighty. It's a summons. So that trumpet, that shofar blast, might as well be saying... Thus saith the Lord, pay attention. He's calling Israel to acknowledge their rebellion. Now we begin with reality, how things actually are versus how they appear to be. Israel is steeped in transgression. Sin has marked the nation. What the details of that are, we don't know yet. We'll get to that in a minute. I think this is a fascinating call for us to consider and try to inhabit. I say that because we're Westerners, We're individualistic and we're American Christians and our minds are shaped by that. That makes it hard for us to consider what does it mean to have a communal call to repent, right? As a people, God is asking his people to return to him as a group. This isn't unusual in the Old Testament. The Lord calls his people to repent uh, together. Corporate guilt requires uh, corporate repentance. So God is asking for a communal response. So if you're feeling brave, go back and reread this passage. But every time you see a reference to Israel or house of Jacob, instead of reading that, insert the church. Or if you're feeling really brave, uh, insert King of Kings there instead and read this passage. It's convicting. It's very revealing. It's if not unsettling. So this first verse is the clarion call. I'm reminding you that you're my Sabbath people and calling you to repent. Okay. But the naysayers, those imitators of righteousness, the impostors who mistake good behavior for holiness, have this to say in their own defense. And this is verses 2 and part of 3. 
Yet they seek me daily, delight to know my ways, as if there were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Now, Isaiah is speaking with more than a little sarcasm here. Thinly veiled irony. Their response to God's call to repent, and we need to observe this, is defensiveness and self-righteousness. They make their case. Now, were we to observe the lives of these Israelites just as a casual observer, uh, they might appear very devout to our eyes. We might be fooled. You know, they're doing the praxis thing. Appearances are deceiving, though, and Isaiah and our gospel passage remind us of this. But we get to verse 3, and this is where things begin to come together. 3 tells us this. They're performing for God and expecting something in return. It's that old quid pro quo. If I do X, God will give me Y. I'll give him a little devotion, and the Lord is obligated to give me some bennies in return. But that's a contract of obligations. That's not relationship. So their queries, didn't you see our fasting? Didn't you see how we humbled ourselves? The Lord is actually going to answer those, but they need to stand back. They're going to get more than they bargained for. Let me read God's response to this. And you need to listen. There's a key phrase in here, and it's as if. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek after your own pleasure and oppress all the workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is, is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? It is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, bring, your home, bring the homeless poor into your house, and you see the naked to cover him, and not hide yourselves from your own flesh? Israel, God is saying this. You fasted, you've performed your duty. You seem, or you appear, to know my ways. It is as if. You seem or you appear eager to draw near to me. It is as if we fasted, Lord, but you didn't notice. Israel seems, oh goodness, Israel seems and appears to follow God, but they're not. They're acting as if. So the Lord issues a rebuke. He said, you know, guys, on the first day of your fast, you're selfish. You exploit others. You quarrel. You do violence. You go through the motions, you act as if. You seem and appear to follow me, but upon closer inspection, you don't. And while we're at it, since when does humbling yourself, devoting yourself to me for a day of the week, one day, mean much? So we might equate that to, uh, you know, going to church on Easter and Christmas. Maybe you throw a little money in the, in the offering plate because we feel guilty. Israel, here is what a true fast looks like. Here's what it means to be a Sabbath people. If you fight injustice, if you help those who are oppressed, if you feed the hungry, clothe the naked, provide shelter to those who have none, Israel, don't say you love me and ignore or exploit your neighbor. Don't do it. So every mention of a godly fast, if you, if you look in verses six, 
7 is completely other-centered. Absolutely. And you can hear God's fierce love to see others set free. This language of loosing bonds of wickedness, untying these straps that bind them and breaking every yoke. Now that recurrent image, yoke, that you hear over and over here, is a symbol of oppression and subjugation. And when you really begin to plumb the depths of the, the, the connotation there, it means of an economic variety. So it's an economic slavery that people are under. Indebtedness usually took the form of heavy taxation, forced labor, things like that. So freeing others from the yoke is releasing them from bondage, acknowledging their dignity. They shouldn't be treated like animals. And once they're free, feeding them, covering them, sheltering them. This is so powerful. So if we're going to go to war, let's go to war against the right things. So the sacrifices we do or don't make, and this is part of Isaiah's point, the sacrifices we do or don't make on behalf of others confirm what's going on right here. The heart. These are the sins of commission and omission. They're the outward manifestations of the inner man, the inner woman. Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So God is saying, Israel, you're failing. And he calls them on the carpet for a failure of love, and a failure to sacrifice, and a failure of mercy. He isn't fooled, he isn't deceived. Not like we are by appearances and good behavior. So what does the genuine article look like? What does it mean to be Sabbath people devoted to the Lord? And here's the contrast I spoke of. What happens when we stop hiding behind self-righteousness and we confess our sins and we return to God and we receive those sweet mercies of his forgiveness and love? Well, let me read you verses 8 through 12. And it begins with this word, then. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily your righteousness shall go before you the glory of the lord shall be your rear guard then you shall call the lord will answer you shall cry and he will say here i am if you take away the yoke from your midst the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness if you pour yourself out for the hungry satisfy the desire of the afflicted then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday sun and the Lord will guide you continually, satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You will be called the repair of the breach, the restore of streets to dwell in. This is what a redeemed, repentant, and free community looks like. This is Israel, ergo the church as God intended it to be. This is what happens when we inhabit our calling 24-7, 365, not just one or two days a year. We become a community of restoration, a place of healing, a place of joy and glory. We're repairs of the breach. Isn't that a great phrase? A place of light breaking into the darkness, a place of restored relationship with the Lord. We discover provision and strength in the scorched places. God gives us strong bones. God gives us water to sustain us. Uh, this is a picture of a free people bound together in the Lord, depending on the Lord, forgiven and raised up by the Lord. Walking in freedom that only comes from forgiveness. Say that again. They're walking in a freedom that only comes from forgiveness. That is a true freedom. And what do they do with that freedom? They serve others, shattering the yokes of oppression. Luther says this, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor certainly does. God does not need our good works, but our neighbor certainly does. 
This is what God is after. And this is what we're aiming at for Lent. I think verses 8 through 12 are a picture of repentance, of people that are constantly returning to God with soft hearts towards Him. That's the posture we see here. This is what's on the other side of repentance. Life, growth, relationship, flourishing, service, mission. If you open up those clenched fists that cling to sin and death, it's amazing how God will fill your hands with the things of life. As a side note, it's never incidental that when the people of God gather intentionally in repentance, revival seems to follow. Repentance has always preceded the great revivals in church history, if you look back. And we see that ancient pattern here in Isaiah 58. Let me close with this. And let me start with some good news. If you're entering Lent, okay, just to get back to that broad category, if you're entering Lent feeling weak or frail or beat up or thin-skinned or hungry or tired or weary, folks, you're in the right place. And I, in fact, I'm going to make the case you have a distinct advantage. Better to enter Lent weak and aware of your frailty, always. Better to feel your mortality, better to feel dependent on the Lord and be living close to the bone. Your surrender is close at hand. You come to the Lord empty-handed like those in the Beatitudes and you know it. There's no fooling with appearances because we're past that point. Good. If that's where you're at, excellent. Um, That is why I'm very hopeful for our church during Lent. We have the distinct advantage this year because of how close to the bone things are how lean things are. The image that comes to mind, which will make a lot of sense as we sit here out in the cold, we're a bit like a house with broken windows and no doors, and much of our insulation has been stripped away. And that cold winter wind, which we felt so many Sunday mornings, is blowing right through this house of ours. We feel it. We feel it. All those things that isolate us from the outside world are now gone. So we huddle together. Right? We're doing it right now. We huddle together and we wait for the Lord. We look for him to show up. Those are not bad things. Far from it. The good news is that the wind we feel now, cold as it might be, just might be the Holy Spirit waking us up so that we can more clearly see the world outside our walls or more attuned to it and we can move into that world of our neighbors with compassion and with conviction, with the good news of Jesus.